0: DW, World in Progress.
1: Welcome to the show. I'm Kathleen Schuster. Coming up, how one woman in Morocco is making waves in the fishing community.
2: I'm a simple woman who doesn't own much, but I can be tough and
1: I don't want to do it any differently than the men do. And it can take time to place children with foster parents. We hear from one woman who takes care of these kids waiting for a home.
3: One wish I have is to take care of my 100th baby, to have achieved that before I retire in seven years. And since I've already had 84, that's only 16
1: more. You're listening to World in Progress. I'm your host, Kathleen Schuster. On this week's show, we're going to hear stories about people who've taken a bad situation and made it into something not just good, but life-changing. We begin with this story from Morocco, where a woman named Fatima made waves in the fishing community when she became the first woman to get a fishing license. And with the work situation becoming more and more uncertain in the region she's from, other women like her are grabbing their fishnets too and following suit. Natalia Bachmeier has this report. It's presented by Ben Ressle.
0: I thought pushing out the small wooden boat onto the ocean wouldn't be much effort. But I was mistaken. It's really tough. Eventually, we do make it, and all of us, the Belyunesh fisherwomen and me, are on our way. As we head to the spot where we throw out our nets, we have time to chat. Fatima, who leads the group, makes quite the impression on me. She's the first Moroccan woman to get a fishing license. And why shouldn't she, she tells me. Fatima grew up right here on the coast, after all.
3: The
2: ocean is my life. It's like a confidant. Sometimes I even speak to it. I tell it what's going on. I talk about my worries. The ocean helps with everything.
0: Some days the women make a big catch. Other days there's barely anything. No idea what today will bring, Fatima tells me. They don't own this boat. They always need to borrow one from the other fishermen. That also means the women only get their turn when the men are done. So for now, Fatima will leave the nets in the water and wait. Back on land, I talked to the local fishermen about their new colleagues. I wonder what it must be like for them. For hundreds of years, it was unthinkable that Moroccan women head out to sea to fish. Now,
4: they're competition. But most
0: of the men seem surprisingly relaxed about this.
4: I've seen women drive tractors, and some are better at catching fish than us. Women are taking up this job
0: because there's no other work. There's no other way to make money here. Fatima is from the village of Bel-Yunesh on Morocco's northern coast, right beside the Spanish exclave of Ciuta. There used to be plenty of jobs in the region in childcare, cleaning and construction. But Ceuta has been sealing itself off in recent years, leaving the people of Belunesh without work, except fishing. During a break repairing their nets, the women get chatting. You're my role model, Safay, the youngest of them all, tells Fatima. Not everyone can do such hard work. Then it's my turn on the fishing net. Turns out I'm not very good at it. But Fatima is certain anyone can learn the craft of tying a net, just like she had to. She didn't become a fisher out of choice, but necessity. She shows me a picture of her late husband who died of diabetes a few years ago, leaving her alone with their three children.
2: He was a very, very good man. He never did anything bad. He treated us very well. We meant more to him
5: than anything.
0: I'm not sure what to say seeing Fatima crying. The women are not just colleagues, but also friends. Friends who help each other whenever they can, on good and bad days. Like today, they haven't caught a single fish, but still need to pay for the boat's fuel. Even so, giving up isn't an option. Proudly, the women show off their fishing licenses. And they're the first to have founded a fishing cooperative in the country. All thanks to Fatima, they say.
3: Fatima is our boss. She set all this up, and I'm proud to be part of it.
0: Their male competitors have had more luck today. Fatima is impressed by their catch but she says there's something she still lacks.
2: My own boat, that's my dream. I'm a simple woman who doesn't own much, but I can be tough and I don't want to do it any differently than the men do.
0: Having her own boat would guarantee her independence and provide an opportunity to earn a little more money, because then she and the others could head out to sea whenever they want.
1: Ben Ressler with that report from Natalia Bachmeier. Well, when it comes to finding life-changing solutions, another example of this can be found in Rio de Janeiro. There's a dance studio there dedicated to helping young girls and women rise to the top, no matter their family or income. The woman behind it overcame a life of hardship herself and says the talent is there in Rio's favelas. It's just a matter of having the right resources to tap into it. Neil King has this report by Paula
4: Kerstin. Today is Sophie's birthday. She's turning nine. And her ballet studio is throwing a small party before class, with birthday cake to follow. Sophie, dressed in a pink leotard, her black hair pulled back tight, is positively glowing. The woman standing next to her is glowing just as much. Her name is Ellen Serra, and she founded the project Vidanka about 12 years ago.
5: We're a family here. We're like the gears in a clock. And every single part of that clock has to be in good shape. I get a lot more back from this than I give.
4: Another little girl named Manu crashes into Ellen Serra for a hug. Ellen gives her a kiss on the head. Linda. The support and team spirit from this project have made a lasting impact on many of these girls' lives. That includes Manu's. Her foster mother, Grazilina de Moraes-Vincente, came with her to class today.
3: vida dela é um She's in a predicament. Her father killed himself. A really sad story.
4: Manu lives in a favela just like Gracilena. She was just three years old when her father took his own life. Her mother has to work a lot, which has always been the case, so she can't take care of Manu, which is why Gracilena does.
3: She was at ballet class when her father was dying, She was shouting, I want to go to my father, I want to go to my father now. And her father was dying. She was more attached to her father than her mother, and she misses him to this day. It makes her cry. But ballet has been her support. Ballet is her dream, it's
4: everything to her. Manu says it's true. She was very sad back then.
2: I have a new father now, though, Gilson. He's cool. He gave me a cell phone. My uncle gave me a tablet, but my mom took it away and uses it for her work. I love dancing here with this project. It's my dream to become
5: a professional ballerina.
4: A dream that's within her reach at Project Vidanka. Ellen Serra opens the door to the class for advanced students.
5: These students have already been accepted to the Bolshoi Theatre School in Brazil, the dance school at the Teatro Municipal, and the Brazilian Dance Conservatory. The children all live in the favela, and they've managed to come out on top against children from the richer districts. They can do it if only given the opportunity.
4: There are two ballet bars in the middle of the room. Some 20 girls are dancing with laser-like focus. They're dressed in black gymnastic clothes and white ballet slippers. 11-year-old Alessandra is one of the dancers. Sometimes she can't come to class because of shootings in her part of town, but she tries never to miss class.
5: When I'm sad, I love to dance. Dancing makes my life easier. It makes everything easier, everything else that comes up. I also dance to help the other girls and boys. I do it to be an inspiration to them.
4: Alessandra will be starting professional classes at the Bolshoi Theatre School in Brazil soon. The project's founder, Ellen Serra, recalls how this whole project, this success story, started.
5: My story with this dance project is also a story of overcoming the odds. As a child, I was a victim of pedophilia. I became pregnant at a very young age, became a mother at 17, and was the victim of domestic violence. It was really terrible, and I didn't want other children to have to go through something like that."
4: That's how the idea for the ballet school came about, a school where education, care and culture would give children and their families direction and stability. Ellen Serra and a friend of hers, who was a dance teacher, started Vidanka with 14 children. In the years since, some 3,000 kids have come through here. More than 90% of them finish school, which gives them the chance to escape poverty.
1: Neil King with that report from Paula Kasten. We're devoting this week's show to stories of people who found surprising solutions to some of life's toughest problems. In Switzerland, the city of Geneva, for example, has one of the highest densities of millionaires in the world. As of 2020, it was second only to Monaco in this category. At the same time, though, an estimated one in five lives in poverty there. This difficult reality sparked the idea to open a gourmet restaurant where everyone is welcome. And for those who can't afford a hot meal, it's on the house. Katrin Hondel has more. Her report is presented by Anne-Sophie Prendlin.
6: As with most top-tier restaurants, the reservation question comes almost immediately after the friendly welcome at Refettorio. The Salvation Army has made a reservation on his behalf, says an elderly man quietly. He takes a seat at one of the twelve large oval tables designed by the artist Michelangelo Pistoletto, specifically for the gourmet restaurant in Geneva. Art also hangs on the walls. Those who dine at Refertorio don't just enjoy excellent food, but also the right ambience. And no one should have to stand in line for this experience, such as the case with soup kitchens or other food outlets for the needy, says Walter el Najar. He's Refertorio's founder and head chef.
0: Ideally what we do, we try to avoid the queue, which is, uh, you know, at the base of this is dignity. It's social inclusion, it's dignity, it's nutrition, human rights. But queuing is not really into this tree for things. So what we do, we we pair with other organizations to grant access to the restaurant. But then we leave always like two, three, four tables uh, available for people that is just passing by. Because it would be very stupid to don't accept someone because they don't have a ticket, especially if it's someone that obviously is sleeping on the street. Our doors are always open.
6: Lunch at Refettorio costs 36 Swiss francs. The evening guests pay nothing for the same meal they simply wouldn't be able to afford it otherwise. Although Geneva is considered a rich city, only Monaco has a higher density of millionaires in the world. Every fifth person in Geneva is at risk of poverty, according to official statistics. Many young people, students, are among the approximately 50 guests who came to Refettorio for the free dinner today. One of them is Joseph, an art student.
0: Um, And Being a student in Geneva is very expensive. So going out to restaurants is no longer something we do as much as we may be used to. Um, so having an invitation from La Paz was really cool. It means we can come down and enjoy, enjoy this.
6: Over at the next table, the quiet man sent by the Salvation Army sits next to Sarah, a woman with Peruvian roots, who is supported by Adage, a Geneva-based aid organization, which focuses especially on the elderly in need.
5: This restaurant is wonderful. The food is fantastic.
6: I've already asked about their unique
5: salad dressing recipe. And the atmosphere here is very warm.
6: An open space visible to all is set up in the kitchen in the middle of the restaurant. Two menus are prepared here every evening. One vegetarian and one with meat. Just like for the paying guests at lunch and with the same care. Chef Sandomitri garnishes wafer thin sliced veal and various dumplings on large white plates.
4: This is uh, Forqueta devo with uh, the sauce of its own juices and horseradish.
5: And there's gonna be an oil of parsley,
4: pickled mustard, and fermented um, mushroom juice.
6: Fermentation is the linchpin of Refattorio's innovative culinary art. Just like in a laboratory, dozens if not hundreds of preserving jars and plastic containers are stored on floor-to-ceiling shelves with, among other things, fish skins, pumpkin seeds, bananas and mustard seeds.
0: What we use fermentation for is to recover food scraps. So that's why it's one of our base.
6: Fermentation is used to save food that would otherwise be thrown away, explains Walter el Najar leaves or roots of vegetables, for example. Everything that usually ends up in the garbage is transformed into ingredients through fermentation. This is sustainable and gastronomically fantastic, he says. The role model and inspiration for Walter L. Najar's experimental cuisine is, among others, the French physical chemist and inventor of molecular gastronomy, Hervé Tis. His portrait hangs in the restaurant kitchen next to a large green poster with the inscription, L'alimentation et politique. Food is political. El Najar describes his avant-garde restaurant as a solidary and social restaurant. All 12 employees receive the same salary as himself. The whole project is supported by a charitable foundation, the Mate Fondazione, which is in turn supported by numerous partners and sponsors. And then there are the many volunteers, like Jane, who bolsters the refettorio team on several evenings by folding napkins, cleaning salad or peeling beetroot.
5: And the thing I particularly like is they get the same food as lunchtime. So the same attention is paid, uh, you know, all the pasta's homemade, everything's homemade, they get good service, and, um, you know, there's no difference between who pays and who doesn't pay.
6: And that, says student Joseph, tastes just stunningly good. It's delicious. It's very nice. Absolutely delicious, yeah.
1: Anne-Sophie Prentlin with that report from Katrin Hondel. Solutions to difficult situations are rarely a quick fix. Just ask a woman named Elke Baumann. For more than 30 years, Elke has been taking care of children waiting to be placed with foster parents in Germany. The process can be a long one because, unlike with adoption, a foster child is still legally connected to their birth parents, and not all potential parents want to deal with this. But Elke is an example of a solid and steady presence for these kids. And for some, she's even become a mother. Evelyn McClafferty has this report from Aunt Breitfeld.
2: Elke Baumann changes a baby's diaper at her home in Germany. At only a few weeks old, Elke cares for the baby tenderly. Elke has a short blonde bob, she wears glasses, and today she's got a black and white Czech shirt on and a light denim pair of jeans. She walks around her apartment, which is full of photographs on the walls, montages of babies she's cared for over the last 30 years. Elke looks after babies who've been taken into care by the Youth Welfare Office, because the birth parents couldn't cope or even abuse them. She provides them with a temporary home until
3: foster parents are found. One wish I have is to take care of my 100th baby, to have achieved that before I retire in seven years. And since I've already had 84, that's only 16 more. Of course, every child that doesn't have to leave the parental home is a success story. But we know life isn't always like that, and there will always be cases. So my hope is that I can stay healthy long enough for this wish to come true. Everyone needs a goal. Elka runs some water over a bottle with
2: milk to make sure it's at the perfect temperature for baby Emma, who is now living with her. Elka's dog, Rocky, a fluffy little thing with big ears and dotted in beige and white, looks on. Emma was only eight weeks old when she arrived at Elka's house. She had been given up for permanent care by her birth mother. There was concern that it might be hard to find new parents because Emma's birth mother took drugs during her pregnancy, and this impacted Emma's health. <laughs>
3: Those sounds you can hear when she drinks—that's because she really struggles to breathe while
5: drinking.
3: <laughs>
2: Elka takes Emma into her arms, turns her on her tummy and holds her up to her shoulder as she wins her after her feed. Questions arise as to whether Emma's long-term health problems might make finding a home for her more difficult. Unlike adopted children, foster children usually remain legally connected to their birth parents. The birth mothers often retain part of the custody rights and can look for contact. Many potential permanent foster parents are put off by this. Elke has kept three of the 84 babies over the years. She stepped in because no one else wanted them. Two of the babies, now adults, are Jennifer and Marcus. We look at photographs of them on the wall.
3: The older one, he's 25 now. He came with a drug problem. And 25 years ago, no one took in children like that. So he stayed. Yvonne is the third baby that
2: Elke kept, now an adult. She has autism and still lives with Elke and her usually short-term foster babies. She's got short, spiky blonde hair and is wearing jeans and a pink T-shirt. We met her in the corridor of Elke's apartment as she comes out of her room.
0: Wie ist das für dich, wenn dann
3: Auch
2: we ask Yvonne what it's like when the babies leave. She says it's strange. We ask whether it's sad and she says yes sometimes. But then we add, well, another baby soon arrives, right? Mm. Yes, she says. And we both acknowledge that this is nice. Mm. Two months after we first met Elka, we visit her and Emma again. A second baby has moved in in the meantime, Nora. Nora is wearing a white and pink dotted tee and a grey and white dotted type baby dungarees. Elka too is wearing a grey
3: top. She tells us about Nora. I picked her up from a crisis centre. She was found there right after the birth. Her mother left her there. The baby's feet are in casts because she has two club feet. She was born with club foot.
2: Baby Emma is in another room and is just about to be picked up and brought to her new home. The separation is expected to be difficult for Elke. To help her in times like this, Heiko Rosentretter is here at the apartment. He carries Nora as Elke carries Emma and is wearing a blue and navy check shirt, glasses and willingly lends his support. He helps her in her work as a short-term foster mother.
4: It's not a job, it's just love. And Emma leaving now is one of those things. She's found a place in our hearts, and so it hurts to let go.
2: Emma's new foster mother has arrived. Sarah Munter and her son Noah met Emma six weeks ago. They bonded with the baby straight away and have visited Emma almost every day since, giving her a chance to get used to them. Now Emma is about to move into her new home. We ask Sarah
3: how she's feeling. It's really exciting. I have lots of different feelings. I'm happy, looking forward and curious about the future.
2: We also ask her why she's doing this.
3: Well, on the one hand, I'm doing it as a job. I'm shifting careers. I work in childcare also with special needs kids. So it's another system different to foster families in that I get a salary for doing it. A big advantage for me as a single parent and for my son is that I can work at home and fulfill my dream of having a second child and hopefully offer her a good future.
2: After four months with Elka and a 15-minute handover, Emma leaves with her new family. Elka is visibly upset.
3: Okay, time for a deep breath.
2: Four weeks after Emma's departure, we're back at Elke's home. A big red car that could hold a small family pulls up outside. Today, it's Nora's day to move out. A couple from Bavaria in the south of Germany, who already have three foster children with disabilities, have come to Berlin. Anna Catherine Knorr and her wife Manuela want to take in little Nora as their fourth child. Anna Catherine says there was no doubt in their minds about taking Nora in their care.
1: We've already seen lots of cute pictures and heard lots about Nora, so it's really not a question at all.
2: Elke is already waiting for Nora's new foster mothers, but she does so holding another baby in her arms.
3: Leo has been here for 14 days now. He was born in hospital. The mum had herself voluntarily discharged a day later and left him there. But it was already clear in advance that the child would be taken into care. It's the mother's fourth child. None of them live with her. But he didn't need immediate withdrawal therapy. I think it's because the mother was in custody and didn't have access to so many drugs. So maybe that was lucky for him. While Leo just recently arrived, Nora
2: is about to leave. Elka sits in her home during the official handover for Nora and gives documentation to her new carers. After two months, Nora is saying goodbye to her temporary foster mom. Again, the handover only takes about 15 minutes.
4: So
3: is <laughs> that okay. one comes, the other goes. That's how it is. One comes, the other goes. A little over
2: two months later, it's summer, and we're visiting Elke again. We sit in her green garden, which has a swing and playpen. Her other three adult foster children are about to drop by. She took in another baby, five-week-old Yula, a while ago. Leo, the little boy affected by his mother's drugs, is also still with her.
3: We can't find anyone. We've been looking for eight weeks now in Berlin, Brandenburg. No one wants him. Actually, the next step now would be a place in a residential group.
2: Markus and Jennifer arrive at Elke's garden. Elke greets them happily. More than 20 years ago, they were foster babies living with Elke. They ended up staying. Markus now works as an IT expert, Jennifer as an assistant chef. Neither of them have any contact with their biological parents. As we sit around a dining table, Marcus tells us that he has never looked for his mother, and Jennifer says she does not want to meet hers.
6: For me, there is only my mother. I mean, not my biological mother, but Elke. For me, she is my mother.
0: We know that we had a great privilege And we were also raised to always appreciate what you have.
2: As Yvonne also joins the group in the garden, Elke greets her. Heiko Rosentretter, who we heard from earlier, picked up Yvonne from an organisation that only employs people with disabilities. She is 21 years old now and still lives at home with her foster mum. Jennifer is now a mother herself. Marcus isn't a father yet, but would like to be in
0: the future. I definitely want to have children. At best, I'll find a woman who is just as strong and we could care for two or three foster children. That would be wonderful. But for me, the time just hasn't come yet.
2: <laughs> it's a happy family reunion around the table. They reminisce, chat and lovingly support each other. Heiko reiterates his support for all children.
4: It's what i say. I always say no child should be seen as a foster child. These are kids and they need our help and support.
2: As Elke watches Yvonne take to the swing and knowing that her care for babies will continue, she says there are two things she wishes
3: for. Yes, of course, my big goal would be to care for the 100th by the time I retire, maybe even to do it a year longer depending on my health. And to find them the best possible homes. And of course, what's still very close to my heart is Yvonne. I'm very worried about that. It's not so easy with her. I don't want to have to send her to some home. I want to find a good setup where someday I can close my eyes and say, she's in good hands.
2: Elko also hopes that Eula and Leo will find new parents. We say that things have turned out well with all of the children we have met so far and ask whether that gives Elka confidence. And she says she has
3: hope for every baby that's with her. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I always say he can stay a while longer. He still needs some pampering. Maybe we'll find someone after all.
1: That report by Ant Breitfeld was presented by Evelyn McLaughlin. And that's all we have for you on this week's show. To listen back to this and past episodes of World in Progress, you can go to our website, dw.com, or follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. In the meantime, if you have any feedback or questions, you can send us an email at worldinprogress at dw.com. This week's show was produced by me, Kathleen Schuster. Our sound engineer was Gad Geoggi. Be sure to tune in again next week. World in Progress is produced by DW in Bonn, Germany.